Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. This morning, I want you to cast your memory back. Some of, not all of you were there. Some of you were there. A summer ago, we actually had a family fun night. Who remembers that family fun night we had out on the field? And we had activities, we had cold drinks, we had water ice. Um, and one of the things we did was a tug of war. Who's, who, who was actually in that tug of war? You remember that tug of war? Like almost nobody. Uh, one of the things, oh, a couple, yeah, a couple people. One of the things I remember about that tug of war is we had uh, all ages, parents, adults, kids, teens, on either side, just kind of holding on to this big rope and kind of pulling with all their might to see if they could get the other team over the line to their side. The only problem was, I remember kind of like looking over at the other team and being like, hey, how'd they get all the muscle guys on their team? Like all the guys with muscles were like actually on the other team. And I was like, um, we got mostly scrawny people like me on this side of the rope. And so we, I, I got to be honest with you. We got our butts kicked at the tug of war. Like we, we gave it our best shot. We pulled so hard, but we got, we pretty much just went flying across like that middle line. Um, and that's actually a picture for the struggle that we're going to see in the passage that we look at this morning. We're in a series called Roots and Fruits, and it's on Galatians 5, verses 13 to 26. In the group of verses that we're going to look at this morning, we see that the author of the letter, Paul, he gives this picture of a tug of war. And he basically says, uh, there's a tug of war in our hearts. There's a tug of war in our hearts. Uh, Take a look at Galatians 5. We're going to start with verse 17. There's a tug of war in our hearts. Um, If you have your Bible, turn to Galatians 5, verse 17. If you don't have your Bible and you want to use the Bible in front of you and the chair under, uh, under the chair in front of you, it's actually page 1813. And all the verses we're going to look at this morning are on page 1813 if you're using that Bible. Galatians 5, verse 17. There's a tug of war in our hearts. Paul says, The flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. And the spirit, what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other. There's a tug of war between them. So that you are not to do whatever you want. So Paul basically says this. He says there's flesh and there's spirit. And they're in a tug of war with each other. Now one of the things that people misunderstand easily about the passage. Is you read flesh and spirit. And it seems like what we're talking about is like. Body bad, spirit good. You know, immaterial good, material bad. That's not what Paul is saying here. What he's saying is, look, spiritually, there's something in us that's being pulled toward our fallenness. It's being pulled toward our selfish bent or our sin nature. And at the same time, God is at work. And he's he's breathing his life into us. And he's strengthening us for better things, to live a life that glorifies him and blesses others. And so he sets up these two contrasts. The first is the flesh. 
And just to kind of dig into what's going on with these two things, let's look a little bit at some of the Greek words that are behind these words, just to get a deeper sense of like, what, is, what, what does he mean by using these words? Um, this word, flesh, I'm going to fill out this in a lovely shade of blue, by the way. Uh, this word, flesh, is the Greek word, sarx, sarx. And um, you could translate it in different ways, but here's kind of almost like a range of meaning of different ways that you could represent it in English. Um, You could say it's our fallenness or our sin nature. Or you might think of it as our selfish bent. It's that thing in us that pulls us to other than what God wants to breathe into our lives. Um, the heart posture of the flesh is this. The flesh is pulling us towards self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency says, I've got this. I've got this. I don't need anybody else. Don't Don't need anybody else around me. Don't need God. I can be who I need to be on my own. I've got this. I can just dig down deep into myself somewhere and I can find the strength to be who I'm supposed to be. I've got this. The other part of the heart posture of the flesh is self-centeredness. Self-centeredness. Self-centeredness says, my will be done. My will be done. And it says, my will be done no matter who it hurts. And so I don't set out saying, most people don't set out saying, I think I'm just going to like go hurt a bunch of people today. But in the process of my will being done, it wreaks havoc on my relationships. So I say, my will be done. And then I look back and I say, wow, you know, I really hurt a bunch of people as I pursued my will being done. So that's the flesh. That's the flesh, the sarks. Uh, Over here, Paul says, the other end of the tug of war is the spirit, the spirit. So the Greek word for spirit is this word pneuma, pneuma. It's kind of a cool word. Um, In Genesis 1, you know, we hear about the, the, uh, the spirit of God hovered over the waters. And then God said, let there be life, let there be light. And when God said, let there be light, one of the things that the ancient reader would have read is the idea that the spirit of God is the breath of God, the rushing wind of God that brings life to what was dead. And so you actually hear the spirit of God hovered over the waters and God said, let there be light. And then this sort of life springs up from deadness. And so there's that sense of God's spirit as wind or breath. And so pneuma actually means the living spirit of God. So spirit or breath or wind. It's the spirit of God blowing into lives, blowing into creation and bringing life where there's deadness. The heart posture of a life that the spirit is blowing into. Over here, we talked about self-sufficiency. A heart posture that the spirit is blowing into is the spirit is shaping dependence on God, dependence on God. Um, Or a heart that says this, Jesus, 
help. Now, if that sounds familiar, that's exactly what Pete Gatta was talking about last week. Just like a life orientation that says, Jesus, help. Jesus, help. An orientation of dependence on God. And as the Spirit breathes into our life, the other thing that is being shaped in us is a heart of worship. A heart of worship. Um, If you see that and you're like, well, that feels a little reductionistic. Because isn't worship just the songs that we sing in church? Well, no. Sometimes people make the point, worship isn't just the songs that we sing. Um, And sometimes people say, it's everything. It's like everything we do. And sometimes they say, it's like, it's the whole service. No, it's more than that. It's literally our whole lives. It's in your whole life, in my whole life, what's worth the most? Who or what is worth the most? Worship is worth-ship. Who or what is worth the most to me? And I'll actually orient my life around the who that's worth the most. So worship. Uh, Worship says, your will be done. Not my will. We had communion last week, and we were talking about by the Spirit of God. Jesus went to the cross saying, not my will, but yours be done, Father. And so the life that the breath of God is breathing into says, your will be done, not my will. So Paul sets up these two extremes that there's a tug of war between. And if we look at other places in Paul's letters where he talks about this sin nature or this fallenness, this selfish bent, this flesh, he talks about it in different ways that help us to say, oh, it kind of helps the light bulb to go on. One of the places that is very helpful to me is Romans 7. In Romans 7, Paul actually shares very transparently and very personally, almost as if you kind of like, you almost feel a little sheepish about reading it. You feel like you're getting a little glimpse into like his diary, almost like you're reading Paul's diary. But he says in Romans 7, he talks about his struggle with the flesh. Romans 7, and I'm just going to read verse 15 and 18 to 19. Romans 7, 15 and 18 to 19. Paul says, I do not understand what I do. It'll be on the screens as well. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. So Paul says, you know, it's pretty crazy that Paul says this. You know, Paul, the apostle Paul, says, look, in my mind, I can envision these good and God-glorifying things that God has for me. But I sort of look back on my day, on my week, on my month, and I say, like, oh, that's what I did? And I hate it. Because I find myself having these selfish impulses and doing the things I don't want to do. And I just hate it. Because it's not really what I want to do. But I sort of find that this tug of war in me is pulling me towards things that are destructive that I don't want to do. And he actually has a name for them. If you were to look at Galatians 5.19, the name that he has for these things that we don't want to do, but we find ourselves doing, is the acts of the flesh. 
these actions that flow out of this heart posture of self-centeredness and self-sufficiency. And uh, there's a whole laundry list of these acts of the flesh that he gives. Too many to delve into this morning. I'll mention just a few. Sexual immorality. Hatred. Jealousy. Fits of rage. Dissensions and factions. And drunkenness. Now just a few verses earlier, Paul has actually said, this is the command that fulfills the law. If you were to say, like, what are the cliff notes for the law? What's everything God's trying to accomplish in lives when he gave his law? And he sums it up this way. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. So one of the things that's striking about these acts of the flesh that he mentions in Galatians 5 is they have a self-centered orientation. They have a self-centered orientation. God made us... Uh, for others-centeredness and for outward-centeredness. He made us to love him and to love other people flowing out of that. Um, He made us to extend his blessing to, to all of creation. And yet, the sin nature pulls us towards being bent in on self. And I want to take a look at some of these examples of the acts of the flesh and say, how is that true? How is that true that these things are self-centered? These things are bent in on themselves. And God wants to bring the breath and life of his spirit to those things. Uh, Remember this in science class? Remember in science class, your teacher said, two objects can't occupy the same space. You remember that? It was just basic physics. You have an object here. And I can't say, I'm going to also put this other object here. I'd have to move the one object to place the other one there. The same is true spiritually. So Paul is actually saying, look, these things and the things that flow out of these things, you can't put them in the same space. They're contradictory to each other. You actually need these things to be transformed, and you need the space to open up for God to put these things, to pour these things into our cup. So let's look at a couple examples of that. Um, In his list of examples of the acts of the flesh, Paul mentions sexual immorality. I can't both objectify someone and love them. I can't both care for someone's needs and treat them as an object for my gratification and validation. In this list of examples of the acts of the flesh, Paul mentions hatred. I can't both hold on to bitterness in my heart against someone else and love them. I can't both care for someone's needs And pay them back for the hurt that they've given me. Or maybe pay them back for the hurt someone else hurt me with. In his list of examples of the acts of the flesh, Paul mentions jealousy. He mentions jealousy. I can't both resent someone and love them. I can't say, well, I want what they have and I need it. And care for them at the same time. I can't both have a posture of coveting and also a posture of caring for their needs. In his list of examples of the acts of the flesh, Paul mentions fits of rage. Fits of rage. Uh, I can't both lash out at people when I feel sad and afraid. And also respectfully and graciously verbalize to them uh, my fear And my sadness in a way that invites them to share their fear and sadness with me. Those two things can't fill the same space. In his list of examples of the acts of the flesh, Paul mentions dissensions and factions. Dissensions and factions. I can't 
create a little bubble of people that only agree with me and people that are safe because I can control them and love people at the same time. I can't be both elitist and care for someone's needs in an other-centered way. In his list of examples of the acts of the flesh, Paul mentions drunkenness. Drunkenness. I can't be both present to somebody's needs to love them well and be numbed out, checked out, or hyped up on a substance. I can't both care for the needs of others around me and indulge my impulse to be either high or drunk. So there's a tug of war in our hearts. It's a tug of war between flesh and spirit. It's a tug of war between selfishness and love. And here's a constant in this tug of war. Here's something that's true of me. Here's something that's true of you. Do you know where we're most vulnerable in this tug of war? We're most vulnerable in the areas we've been most deeply wounded. We're most vulnerable in the areas where we've been most deeply wounded. Uh, Years ago, I foolishly didn't go to the doctor when I hurt my hand. Uh, I was playing hide-and-seek with my son Hudson. A lot of you guys know I have adults, I have teens, and I have a six-year-old. So we have a wild range of ages in our household. I was playing uh, hide-and-seek with Hudson, my six-year-old, and I got my hand shut in the door. And I was like, man, that hurt. I was like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I don't need to go to the doctor. It kind of healed weird. Because if I hit it or like bend it funny, or sometimes if I'm driving the car, I'll like turn the steering wheel in a a way that just causes a shooting pain in my hand. So uh, I I have this vulnerability in my hand. Now that comes into play with the tug of war that I told you about. (laughs) Uh, On family fun night, we were doing that tug of war. You better believe that one of the biggest reasons we lost that tug of war in terms of my contribution to the team is like, my hand was killing me. So I had to loosen my hand because I had the shooting pain in my hand as I pulled really hard on the rope. And I kind of doubled down on the other hand. But you know, like that one-handed approach is not really gonna help the team that much. (laughs) So we lost this tug of war in large part, at least from the standpoint of my participation in the tug of war, because my vulnerability came into play. The same thing is true in our lives. Um, We have vulnerabilities in our hearts, and they're the places where our hearts have been wounded. In a fallen world, as we just travel through life, we're wounded. We experience wounds because of the sin of other people, because of our choices uh, as we live out the acts of the flesh. And I want to give you some concrete examples of how these vulnerabilities play out. A few examples come to mind. If you've been wounded by the criticism or the neglect of a parent, then you're likely vulnerable to a need for desperate validation. If you are wounded by the criticism or neglect of a parent, you're likely vulnerable to manipulating and controlling others to fill your cup with the love that's empty because you didn't receive it as a child. If you've been wounded by somebody as payback for hurt they experienced from you or maybe from someone else, you're likely vulnerable to passing on that hurt to others rather than to dealing with that hurt in a constructive and healing way. Um, Without intentional steps of healing, the old adage usually holds true that hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. 
If you've been wounded by being made to feel less than or not enough, you're likely vulnerable to wanting what others have. You're likely vulnerable to a spirit of resentment toward others because they've received or they've achieved more than you have. If you've been wounded by a loved one who deals with anger and fear by lashing out and blowing up, then likely you're vulnerable yourself to angry outbursts or maybe angry passive aggression. If you've been wounded by being made to feel excluded or rejected, you're likely vulnerable to creating your own little club where people agree with you and you can control everyone in that club and everyone else is not welcome. If you were wounded by somebody who medicated their pain through substance abuse, then you're likely vulnerable to medicating your pain, to running away from what you need to deal with with God's help through substances. There's a tug of war in our hearts. It's a tug of war between flesh and spirit. It's a tug of war between self-centeredness and between what the spirit of God wants to do in our lives. In this tug of war, we're most vulnerable to the pull of the flesh in the area where we're most deeply wounded. And if that were the end, if like that were the end of the teaching, if I was like, all right, so just try really hard, everybody, not to give into the flesh, then you would just leave so discouraged and so deflated. But Paul goes on and he communicates a game changer. He communicates a game changer. And that game changer is that relationship with God roots us in the power of his spirit. Now, Last week and the week before this, Pete and I were talking about this. We're going to go a little deeper into this. What does Paul mean when he talks about the power of the Spirit at work in our lives? At Family Fun Night, uh, you will recall that we lost miserably to the tug of war. Um, the second round was a little different. We lost round one, but I'm here to tell you the second round went better. So uh, John Ciotta is kind of like arranging things. You know, he's kind of uh, directing the evening. And I actually never asked him about this, but I'm pretty sure he noticed how miserable our team was. He just said, look at that scrawny guy over there. Uh, look at that scrawny guy, Jer, over there. Like, he needs some help. So he actually, I, he pointed to a few guys, like solid muscle guys. I, I, I don't recall exactly who all of them were, but I remember Steve Burry was one of them. So like, if you know Steve Burry, he's just like solid muscle. So he's like, okay, he pointed to a couple of guys, Steve Berry and a couple of his muscular cronies, came over to our side, and, um, and they just grabbed that rope, and he said, go, and this time, our team won. Like, the force with which that rope got pulled on pulled the other team over the line. Our team won. The reason our team won is we actually were coupled with the right person who had the strength. That's what Paul is saying here. Like, couple your life with the living presence of God. That's where the strength is. Look at Galatians 5, verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So there's a, there's a pretty cool phrase here. Um, this phrase, walk by the Spirit, let's kind of dissect this a little bit. It's this phrase, peripateo. Numa. Now, we already looked at Numa, right? Remember, Numa means like the, the living spirit of God, uh, the breath of God, the wind of his presence. So we kind of looked at that already. This peripateo is kind of an interesting word. 
Um, you could translate this and represent it in English with a, a range of words, including walk, which is what the NIV does. Um, you could also translate it live or perhaps do life. Or you could translate it journey. So words like that. So the idea that Paul is conveying here is this. He's saying, look, do life with the Spirit. Do life with the living presence of God. Walk the path of life in a way where you're pursuing God. You're orienting your life around Him. You're integrating Him into every aspect of your life. I loved last week how Pete gave us some specifics from his walk. Uh, how he takes a walk and some specific things that he does just to cultivate relationship with God. That's what he's saying. He's saying, and he's saying, as you do that, the Spirit of God breathes into your life and brings life to the dead places. The Spirit of God guides. The Spirit of God strengthens. The Spirit of God heals where you're wounded. Now, Paul's saying this, but he's not getting it out of nowhere. One of the things that I realized a couple years ago, and it was a light bulb moment in my reading of scripture. I don't know if you guys remember this. A number of years ago, some of you remember, we actually read through and discussed the book of Deuteronomy. Tough read. Right at the end of Deuteronomy, there's like this Holy Spirit thing that refers to what Paul is talking about in Galatians 5. Right in Deuteronomy 30. Right in Deuteronomy 30. The verse is going to be on the screen, but here's the context. Deuteronomy 30, uh, Moses is giving this message on the plains of Moab to the Israelites who are about to enter the promised land. They've just traveled through the wilderness for 30 years. Or for 40 years. I just said 30, right? But 40 years they've traveled through the wilderness. And for 40 years, there's been this cycle of failure where they've just given in over and over and over to the acts of the flesh. And if, if you read like, the, uh, like Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you'll see some of these stories of them giving in to the acts of the flesh. And Moses basically says, look, you're not going to be able to do it, Israelites, without God's living presence doing it in you. And this is how he puts that. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 and verse 8. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. You will again obey the Lord and follow all his commands I'm giving you today. He says, Moses says to the Israelites, Israelites, the cycle's going to continue until God breaks the cycle. God is going to break the cycle by his living presence coming into your lives in a way where he changes you from the inside out. A couple years ago, I was reading Galatians, and I said, oh, that's what Paul's talking about. That's what Paul's talking about. He's saying, hey, readers, remember in the Old Testament when God said he would circumcise your hearts, he would make them soft in a new way and change them by his spirit? That's today. That's what's happening today, church. He's saying, look, through your faith in Jesus, God's living presence is in you. And as you walk with God and you orient your life around him, he breathes new life into your life. And so these beautiful things come out of your life. These new things grow where before there was just deadness and self-centeredness. That's what he's talking about.
It's not surprising that in the list of things that he gives, that he calls the fruit of the Spirit, the things that the Spirit is growing as he breathes into our lives, the first one is love. The first one he mentions is love. Relationship with God grows in us love for others. Relationship with God grows in us love for others. Uh, Galatians 5.22, it'll be up on the screen. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then he goes on and he gives, just in the same way that he gave a whole laundry list of the acts of the flesh, he goes on and he gives this whole list of the beautiful things that God's growing in our lives. Now we're going to stop there with love. It's significant that the first one that he mentions is love. Over the next five weeks, we're actually going to go through all the other ones. All the various speakers are going to go through all the other ones. But he starts with love. He starts with love because remember, earlier in the chapter, he said, here is the command that fulfills the whole law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, if God is breathing new life into your life and you're loving your neighbor as, the, as yourself, he's fulfilling in you. He's growing in you who he's always wanted human beings to be. So as you and I walk the road of life with God and we're orienting our lives around God, it's amazing the emotional and spiritual strength and health that we're going to see. As we integrate every aspect of our life with God, as Pete said last week, as we pursue him first, the new life that's going to grow in our life is going to be amazing. We had a a men's gathering in May. And one of the books that we gave to each man at the men's gathering is this little book by Tim Keller, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's called The Path to True Christian Joy. Um, And essentially, it's a book about what we're talking about. It's a book about saying, look, as you just walk with the living presence of God, as you root yourself in Jesus Christ, what kinds of things flow out? We were talking about, at the men's gathering, the the, idea. Rooting your identity in Christ. So each man got a copy of this book. There's just some examples toward the end of this book that are powerful. I just want to read you a couple of excerpts. Keller calls love, kind of his description for love is gospel humility. Just an other's centeredness. Um, Just like the breath of God blowing into your life and it flowing out into the life of others as you just walk in daily relationship with Jesus. He calls that gospel humility. So he actually says, if, if we were to meet a truly humble person, we would never come away from that meeting thinking, man, they're humble. They would not always be telling us they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they're a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience and every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. The blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. A truly gospel humble person is not a self-hating person or a self-loving person, but a gospel humble person. 
the truly gospel humble person is a self-forgetful person whose ego is just like his or her toes. Love this. It's just like his or her toes. It just works. It does not, not draw attention to itself. The toes just work. The, uh, neither of uh, the ego just works. Neither draw attention to itself. Friends, wouldn't you want to be a person who does not need honor, nor is afraid of it? Someone who does not lust for recognition, nor on the other hand is frightened to death of it? Don't you want to be the kind of person who when they see themselves in a mirror or reflected in a shop window does not admire what they see but does not cringe either? Wouldn't you like to be the type of person who in their imaginary life does not sit around fantasizing about hitting self-esteem home runs, daydreaming about successes that gives them the edge over others? Or perhaps you tend to beat yourself up and to be tormented by regrets. Wouldn't you like to be free of them? Wouldn't you like to be the skater who wins the silver and yet is thrilled about those three triple jumps that the gold medal winner did? To love it the way you love a sunrise? Just to love the fact that it was done? For it not to matter whether it was their success or your success? Not to care if they did it or you did it? You are as happy that they did it as if you had done it yourself. Because you are just happy to see it. You will probably say, you don't know anybody like that. But this is the possibility for you and me as we root ourselves in Jesus Christ. I can start to enjoy things that are not about me. My work is not about me. My skating is not about me. My romance is not about me. My dating is not about me. I can actually enjoy things for what they are. They are not just for my resume. They are not just to look good on my college or job application. They are just a way they are not just a way of filling up the emptiness. And then he ends that section by saying, wouldn't you want that? Wouldn't you want that? Uh, if you want to read more, very helpful. You can just grab it. I just happened to get this from Amazon.com. You can just grab it where you buy books. As the wind of God's spirit blows into our lives, truly incredible levels of emotional health and spiritual strength will be the result. We're going to hear a song in just a moment. The worship team is actually going to join us here on the stage. It's a song, a powerful song by Andrew Peterson. The song is a letter of apology. So the lyrics of the song are a letter of apology. And the, the apology is because the songwriter spoke hurtful words to someone. And there's a relationship where there's hurt and there's brokenness. And... The songwriter, Andrew, is praying for res restoration in that relationship. He sings, uh, now my heart is like a catacomb. Now my heart is dead. It's like a catacomb. And I'm praying we can find a way to raise these bones. So he's praying for resurrection. But frankly, he doesn't really even know the words to say to make things right. And he expresses at one point in the song, his desire is to love this person better than he failed to do. He sings, now I've got this sorrow and you've got that hurt and we can't go back to who we were. But could that mean I'm someone new? Maybe I can love you better than I failed to do. He expresses a desire to love someone better than he failed to do. He says, I look back at what I do and I hate it. I hate it. I want to love 
you better than I failed to do. And you'd almost think he'd end the song and say, and so, like, we'll see what happens and I'll try real hard. But what he actually says is here's going to be the secret sauce. Here's going to be the game changer. He says, in this tug of war between flesh and spirit, we're like, I really don't feel like making it right with you. I kind of just want to stand by the hurtful words that I spoke. He said, I'm going to give it time and trust in grace. He says, look, time and walking with God is going to make all the difference. Because I don't really have what I need in myself to make the relationship right. But when I walk with God, I grow in love because God's the source of love. So listen to this song, and then I'll be back um, with a response that we're all going to participate in together. Just reflect on this song. I want to say I'm sorry, but I don't know how. I'm sorry, so sorry. I said some words to you I wish I never said. And no words can kill, cause something's dead. Now my heart is like a catacomb. I'm praying we can find a way to raise these bones again Oh, again well, I want to say I'm sorry, but it's not enough To close the wounds I opened up now I've got this sorrow and you've got that hurt We can't go back to who we were Oh, but that could be I'm someone new Maybe I can love you better than I failed to do Before the war I'll tell you everything was beautiful and pure there was poison in the world from years before Now I'm cleaning up this wreckage on the shore And I don't want to fight with you no more So I want to say I'm sorry that I drew the line I built the wall, I fought this Maybe now the only way to find some peace Is just to give it time And trust in grace So this is my communion hymn And I want to sit beside you at the feast, my friend Again, again, oh again And again So I, I sensed that maybe while you were hearing that song, there was a person that, that you were picturing in your mind, uh, a person who the, rest, the relationship needs restoration. Um, let, we just want to take a moment. I'm going to give you a moment of quiet. I want to pray for you. 
to pray for God's strength as he moves you uh, to have that hard conversation. As he moves you to take steps of reconciliation, to take steps of healing. As he, as he moves you to genuinely work through whatever the hurt is that exists between you. Um, the genuine hurt. So that you are able to let go and say it's not okay, but God's gracious. It's not okay, but God's gracious. And God laid down his life for us. And he breathes into our lives and he gives us the grace to lay down our lives for others. So let me just pray for you. And then we're going to stand and respond together. Lord, whoever that person is that you brought to mind as that song was playing. Guide each person in their process with your spirit. Bring to mind, God, every way that 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 person has been hurtful or unfair. And God, may we look it right in the face. And God, may you give us the strength to let go of it. Show us what we need to do. Do we need to write an unsent letter? God, do we need to just sit in quiet? in the beauty of your creation. And and God, just look right in the face the ways that we've been hurt. God, so we can move into it and with your strength out the other side. Um, God, lead us to truly let go and forgive in whatever that relationship is that needs restoration. God, not simply to just put a good face on it and check the box. But God, lead us to genuinely look at the hurt and to genuinely let go of it and to genuinely meditate on we were undeserving. And God, you are full of grace and laid down your life for us. God, breathe into our lives with the power of your spirit. May your life-giving spirit bring life where there's deadness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to invite you just to stand. I'm actually going to read a prayer. I'm going to read a written prayer. And as I read it, it's going to be on the screens. In your hearts, let these be heart words to Jesus. So you pray in your heart. Let these be your words to invite God to shape you into someone who sincerely loves by the power of his spirit. As I read these words aloud. O Christ, who made himself the servant of all, I would set my heart and my affections upon you and upon you alone. For I can only serve others rightly when such service is undertaken from first to last as an act of devotion offered to you. In serving you, I am freed from my need for the praise of others. So that even if my kindnesses are shed from scarred hearts as rain from a sloped tin roof, my joy will not be dimmed. For I will know that you have received and remembered each act of sacrifice and reckoned it as a love rendered to you.
So let my love be sincere. Let my service be fearless, O Lord. I would serve in imitation of you who poured out your life for me. I would serve knowing that your spirit is ever at work in the lives of those I serve, ever calling, ever drawing, ever seeking to soften hearts encased in fear and disappointment and anger and idolatry. So let my kindnesses and sacrifice fall like warm shafts of sunlight on an icy ground. I cannot know the end of another person's story. Our lives so often only briefly intersect. So let me be content to minister regardless of visible outcomes. Trusting that the small mercies I extend will be woven into the larger theme of redemption at work in the lives of others as you woo them to yourself. Drawing their hearts by graces offered and shaping my own heart too in this process of learning to serve well. And by learning to serve well, learning to love well. Amen. So good to worship together today. Thank you for making a priority out of worship. If you'd like someone to pray for you, somebody from our prayer team would love to pray for you up here on your right. God bless you. Can't wait to see you again.